I don't know how many of you here this morning have been watching the news this week or over this last month, the frustrating news that it is, seeing the, the unfolding of events around our world. Um, did anyone watch the news? Some people. It can be a bit of a tedious, arduous task. But when we look out on our world today, as Christians especially, things look bleak. We have abuses in authority by those we respect. We have Christians who are being murdered on a scale that has um, never been heard of before, never seen. Our Christian voice, where we were once the, the voice in the nation that could speak and people would listen, we're not really listened to the way we once were. And in our Western world, where the Bible used to be, oh, sorry, I've woken you up. Um, when the Bible used to be the standard of moral authority, it is no longer that. It is derided by so many and mocked. And the one true God that we worship and we love and we've been singing about this morning is even mocked and ridiculed everywhere we look. And if you think things aren't so bad, you only have to look back in the last couple of years in the UK and Ireland to see the types of laws that have been passed and been celebrated. And that'll tell you the state that we're in. But how do we respond? What do we do? And I want to give you encouragement this morning from the story we're looking at today to give you hope, give you confidence, and give you assurance that something can happen, something can be done, and things can change. Last week, we were looking at how the people of God suffered a heavy defeat in battle to the Philistines. 34,000 died over the course of two battles. And in that battle, they did something incredibly foolish that highlighted their distance from God. They weren't in relationship, as Hannah talked about around the table. They were just treating God like he was a bit of an add-on. They weren't having the respect that they should have had. But the most foolish thing that they did in that moment is that they decided they would bring the Ark of the Covenant, the most precious thing in all of Israel, the symbol of God's presence and the seat of God's glory in their midst, the most important significant they had, and they brought that onto the battlefield. They hoped that it would turn the tide, but it did not, and it was taken by the Philistine enemy. But as we looked at last week, the, to the Israelites, this box, this symbol and seat of God's glory and God's presence had become like a bit of a good luck charm, something you pull out when things go bad and the hope that things are going to turn around. And we're going to look at then what happened after that. The Philistines took the ark to their camp, and let's read what happened. So 1 Samuel chapter 5, beginning to read at verse 1. After, Samuel, uh, sorry, after the Philistines had captured the ark of God, they took it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then they carried the ark into Dagon's temple and set it beside Dagon. When the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, there was Dagon fallen on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord. They took Dagon and put him up in his place. But the following morning when they rose, there was Dagon fallen on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord. His head and his hands had been broken off and were lying on the threshold. Only his body remained. That is why to this day, neither the priests of Dagon nor any others who entered Dagon's temple at Ashdod step on the threshold. Let us pray. 
God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your truth. We thank you for your presence. And we pray that through them this morning, you would give us hope. You would give us confidence. You would give us assurance to be the people that you've called us to be in the days that we live. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The placing of the ark in the temple of Dagon was supposed to be a sign of Dagon's power over Yahweh and Yahweh's inferiority. When the enemies warred in Old Testament times, it wasn't just army against army, it was God against God. So whoever came out victorious, that would be the God who was the strongest. The nature of Dagon, this God in this temple, is uncertain. A lot of people have thought different things throughout the ages. Was he a fish god, half man, half fish? Did he have a tail? Was he a god of fertility? Was he the god of the grain and the harvest? Was he a storm god? It's impossible to know, but one thing is certain. When you read the book of Judges, and in the time of the Judges, whenever there was a mass sacrifice offered, it was offered to Dagon. So he was the highest deity and false deity in the land for the Philistines at this time. He was the, the top dog or top fish, if he was a fish god. As I said last week, you can almost hear the soldiers, the Philistines, as they carry the ark of God back to their camp laughing and mocking the, the, the armies of God. Like They thought this was going to rescue them. They thought this God was going to be strong enough to defeat our God, but that wasn't the case, and they were laughing. But they weren't laughing in the morning when they arose to find their God face down on the floor before the ark of God. This supposed supreme deity, Dagon, was on his face before the Ark of the Covenant. God was making a point that wherever he is, everything else must bow. That's what God was saying through this act. Day two, the same thing happens again. The people prop the statue up. Dagon's in his temple. He's on whatever he is on. And the next day they come in and he's lying face down, but his hands and his head have been removed now, when you read that, you think, oh, he just fell over and his hands fell off and his head fell off. But in the Hebrew, it actually says that they were severed. They were actually removed specifically, hands and head. God was showing he was king and this other God must fall. His symbols of power and authority were removed. All that's left is a stump. There's a few key points I want to say here. God does this on his own. The people of God are miles away. In fact, about 50 to 60 miles away. There are no people of God here. It's only the ark. It's only God's presence. And God does this on his own. Everything else must fall. Years ago, Spurger, Spurgeon, Spurger, Spurgeon, the king of, or the prince of preachers, who was a great man from the past, a great communicator of God's word, he was asked to join Bible defense societies. So people came to him and said, Spurgeon, because he was a great orator, you could be a part of us defending the word of God in our nation, in our day. And he said something along the lines of, you don't need to walk before a lion with a sword. You just let it loose and it defends itself. And he used that illustration a few times. And he, what he was saying was, God does not need us and God's word does not need us. We just need to let it loose and it will do the defending on its own. And this is what happened here. The ark of God toppled the statue of Dagon. So he does this on his own. He does this even when his people have messed up. God is not dependent on our good performance. God will have his way when he decides to have his way, even when we fail. 
And I'm glad about that. Because if it was dependent on us, things would never get done. But it's dependent on him. So he does what he pleases, even when his people make mistakes. He's not helpless. See, if your God is helpless, if you don't come to his rescue, he is not God at all. Our God is not helpless. He does these things on his own. And he does this, God does this in the darkest, most evil, sinister place there is in the land. See, this temple was not just a temple where you've seen a statue. There was human sacrifice that went on here. There was all sorts of wicked occult practices that would have taken place in this very temple. So when God goes here in his presence, seated upon the ark of God, he's going into the darkest, most vile um, situation imaginable. But what happens? And he does this, God does this even without so much of a fight. There's no fuss, there's no clamor, there's no keyboard in the background. Do you know, it's just God, and God makes Dagon fall. The application for us today is obvious, hopefully. Folks, to us, when things look dark, when things look bleak, even when wickedness and uncertainty are everywhere, even when we think the enemy has the upper hand, do not believe it. God is working God is active, God is not helpless, and God is sovereign. We do not need to fear. All we have to do is trust our true living God. We heard that this morning in our songs. We heard that as Simon communicated his heart for our worship this morning. We do not need to fear. All we have to do is trust. To us, this idea of somebody worshiping a statue seems ludicrous, who would ever bow down and worship a thing that had no life in itself? Who would ever ascribe value to non-living things? Folks, in our day and cultures gone by, every culture sets up false gods of its own. Every culture has these ideas and these things that are in opposition to the living God. And it's no different in our day today. We have consumerism. We have power, the lust for power. We have people who just want to live a comfortable, easy life, and that's their highest goal. We have sensuality on every side. We have people who bow down to the gods of appearance, and that wasn't me by this morning saying into the mirror, look at me. No, that definitely was not me. It really wasn't. Some of you don't believe me. I didn't do that. That was just not true. You have lust on every side. You have greed, people doing unstable. On, um, things unimaginable because they're so greedy and hungry for money and power. These are all false gods, and all these false gods have influence in our land. Our spiritual enemy, who is very real, he uses these things and these mechanisms to steal and to kill and to destroy on every side. That's what he plans to do. That's what he wants to do, and he wants to expand his influence on a large scale. And when people give him a foothold, it becomes a stronghold, and then it becomes a stranglehold. So someone who sets out just to have enough money to get by, sooner or later, they're entangled in this web of constantly needing more, constantly wanting, constantly never being satisfied with what they have. We see that in our day. People who start out just to, to want to look nice in the morning actually become consumed by this appearance, this God of appearance, and they want to do everything they can just to look right, to be popular 
all these things we see in our day. And it's, a, it's the same on an individual basis as it is on a national basis. As we look across our nation, we see strongholds of enemy power. We see girls starving themselves, literally, to look a certain way. We see people who despair of their own lives because they're not popular. We see so many people that desire to have more, never happy with what they have, and will literally abandon their families to spend more time in work so that they can have more money to buy meaningless things. These are strongholds of enemy power in our day. We see lust and sensuality and perversion everywhere we look. Need to be sensitive because of the different age ranges here this morning. But have you ever went looking for something to watch on TV or Netflix or one of the Sky Movie channels? It's really, really difficult to find anything suitable to watch. Now I'm not a I'm not a weirdo who says, get rid of your TV, don't go to the cinema, don't enjoy. I like entertainment, but it's actually difficult to sit down and watch anything that you could watch if Jesus was sitting beside you really difficult. It shows that there's something wrong. There's people being exposed for behavior 30 years ago, 40 years ago, where they were seen as being a pillar of society, and things are coming out. Something wrong in our day. And this one, maybe most horrific of all, to the gods of comfort and ease, we in the West are literally giving our infants in the millions every year. Every year, in the millions. And we'll say, oh, well, there's different circumstances and different situations. You look at the statistics of why children in the womb are being removed. And you look at those statistics of why that is happening. And nearly within the 90% of it has to do with social economic reasons. And really, when you dig deeper, it comes down to comfort and ease. Folks, there's something wrong. There's something radically wrong in our society and in our culture. What do we do as Christians? I'm glad you asked. We're going to get to that in just a minute. Let's look at the next part of the story. Verse 6, if you've still got your Bible open. You still with me? Yes. Verse 6 from chapter 5. It says, The Lord's hand was heavy on the people of Ishtod and its vicinity. He brought devastation on them and afflicted them with sores. When the people of Ishtod saw that this was happening, they said, the, the ark of the God of Israel must not stay here with us because his hand is heavy upon us and on Dagon, our God. So they called together all the rulers of the Philistines and asked them, what shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They answered, have the ark of the God of Israel moved to Gath? That was another Philistine territory. So they moved the ark of the God of Israel but after they had moved it, the Lord's hand was heavy against that city, throwing it into a great panic. He afflicted the people of the city, both old and young, with the outbreak of sores. So they sent the ark of God to Ekron, another city in um, the Philistine territory. As the ark of God was entering Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, They have brought the ark of God around us to kill us and our people. So they called together all the rulers of the Philistines and said, Send the ark of the God of Israel away. Let it go back to its own place, or it will kill us and our people. For death had filled the city with panic, 
God's hand was very heavy on it. Those who did not die were afflicted with sores, and the outcry of the city went up to heaven. Let's read on in chapter 6, verse 1. When the ark of the Lord had been in Philistine territory seven months, the Philistines called for the priests and diviners and said, what shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us how we should send it back to its place. They answered, if you return the ark of God, the God of Israel, do not send it back without a gift. By all means, send a guilt offering to him. Then you will be healed. Then you will know that his hand has been lifted from you. And we'll stop our reading there. What happens in the rest of that passage and the rest of that story is all the Philistine leaders say, we need to get rid of this thing. And they want to send it here and they want to send it there. But ultimately they say, we need to get rid of this ark. We're going to send it back to Israel territory. We're going to send it with a sacrifice. So they make up different gold um, images to represent what they have been experiencing. And they want to send it back into Israel and kind of hands off. It's like a hot potato. Wherever they send it, difficulty arises. The, the people are suffering. Dagon has fallen. Everything is going wrong because the ark is there. The Philistines, this is the point, Philistines thought they were just bringing a box, but they were bringing Almighty God into their midst, and they can't get rid of him. Something happens to these people as a result of God being there. And folks, when we pray and when we ask God to make himself known, we have in our minds that he's going to make himself known in the way that we think he should. But sometimes God makes himself known in acts of discipline and judgment. When you pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, sometimes you're actually calling for God to show and reveal his displeasure and his holiness against that which is wrong. And that's sometimes what happens. We'd seen that in the early church, didn't we? God's presence was moving and active and revival and thousands being added to the kingdom. You had there a couple who wanted to lie to God. And as a result, because God's presence was so evident in their midst, they were struck down in judgment. And this is what's going on here. God is revealing his displeasure and anger against what has been going on in the Philistine territories. The judging hand of God is against this nation and this people for how they have esteemed God. Folks, do not forget our God is a God of justice, righteousness, and holiness. Did you hear me? He is a God of justice, righteousness, and holiness. We can't just say, oh, I don't like that part of God. I like the, the cuddly one. Do you know the really one that's really nice? And do you know we're best of mates and we're all friendly? We all love the fact that God is imminent. He is near us. His arms are open to us. He is displaying his love towards us. But don't forget that this same God gets angry when things are done that destroy his people and his creation and bring hurt and pain into our world. He's the same God. You can't take one part and leave the other. And God is showing his displeasure here against the Philistines. The judging hand of God is upon these people for how they have thought about God. Folks, I shudder when I think when the day comes when God judges our land and our nation and the people who have had the written word of God proclaimed and preached for so many centuries. What high is God going to judge us? And that might be in the years to come. Maybe what we're seeing at the minute is God's discipline and displeasure being revealed. 
But what about on that day when, this, when us as a nation stand before God and he has the record of the unborn that have been taken, when he's had the abuses of the poor and the children sent down the chimneys to sweep and the infants on the streets, what's he going to say? As much as you did it to the least of these, you did it to me. I shudder to think if God was to reveal his anger and displeasure against us, that would be a terrifying day. few things I want to take, um, give you from this story that I want you to take into this week in light of this story that we see in the Old Testament. The first thing I want you to do is recognize that our God is supreme over all. Our God is supreme over all. Now, we say amen to this. Hopefully, I don't, didn't hear anyone say amen to that, but hopefully, I would imagine you might say amen to that. But the fear in my heart and in your heart at the way things are and the way things are heading, show that we don't really believe it. We say we believe it. We say, amen, our God is supreme over all, but in our hearts, do we really believe it? We were singing about it earlier. He has no rival. He has no equal. He has no rival. He has no equal. See, the gods of Egypt found that out during the Exodus. The rulers of the Philistines found it out in our story. The gods of the Assyrians and the Babylonians later on found it out. The gods of Rome, who proclaimed themselves to be saviors and messiahs, and the rulers and the kings of the earth found it, out, found it out also. Every false religion, every false cult, every sect, every ism that arises and that comes along will find it out also that our God is supreme. The Nietzsche's of this world who shout God is dead find out that when they are gone, God lives on and God is supreme. Voltaire and his mockery of the word of God and say that we only needed intellect. Well, he has been and gone and his house is now a printing press for Bibles. All these people find out that our God is supreme and every false God will fall. Every knee will bow. There is only one sovereign God who is Lord over all. He is the Alpha, He is the Omega, and He is the one worthy of praise. He is supreme, and every idol, principality, or power that sets itself up against Him will be defeated and is defeated. God raises up, and He dethrones. No one or nothing can stay His hand. No power of hell, no scheme of man, can never pluck us out of his hand, but can never defeat the God that we serve. And one day, as Hannah said around the table, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. Now, personally, why does that matter? Because he is your Lord and your God and your supreme. You can walk in victory in your life too. Listen to what Colossians 2 verse 13 said. When you were dead, in your trespasses and sins and the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave all of your trespasses, canceling the debt ascribed to us that stood against us. He took it away, nailing it to his cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, that is the spiritual powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, 
triumphing over them by the blood of his cross. That's where you find yourself this morning in Christ, in the victorious one. You're seated with him and in him. And because he is victorious, you who have been brought onto his side through the death, resurrection of Jesus, you can be victorious too. Amen? This is what will be the final summary and analysis of all of our lives, as spoken of in Revelation 12, 10. For the accuser of the brothers has been thrown down. That's the enemy. He who accuses them day and night before God. And this is what will be said. They have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives even to shy away from death. See, this is what will be said of us who are truly in Christ. We will be victorious. We will conquer. We will overcome. And the enemy who sets himself up against God as if he's some terrifying thing to be feared, he will be cast down and we will overcome him. Folks, if you're in Christ covered by the blood of the lamb, you will overcome. You will walk in victory. Whatever comes against you, Whatever season that you're in, you will overcome because the lamb has overcome and you're in him and you're covered by him. So whatever you're going through, whatever lies ahead, whatever you face today, your supreme God knows everything. He is able to deliver from the fire or he'll stand with you in the fire. He is able to give you hope and restore even the things that you thought are lost forever. Even the things that you think are impossible, he's able to make it possible. He's able to melt the hardest heart. He's able to open a path in the desert and even through the water. He's able to use, and this is my favorite one of all, even the bad and the horrible situations in your life and work out good and his glory. He's able to do all these things because he's supreme. So I want you to recognize that. Can you say you will think about that this week? I want you to recognize it because our God stands above everything. He's not like the gods and the false gods who fall on their faces. He's, I can't even describe how much further he is above those things. And it's important for us in our day where a lot of Christians carry around a Jesus they can fit in their back pocket. It's important that we have a big picture and an accurate picture of who our God is. See if your God is dependent on you. He's not big enough. See if your God is taken by surprise. It's something that comes into your life. He's not God of Scripture. See if your God is troubled by what's going on in the world around. He is not the God of the Bible. Our God raises up. He dethrones. He has no rival. He has no equal. And we probably could spend the rest of the morning saying that because we don't get that. Our God is too small in our minds. So recognize his supremeness. Secondly, recognize the almighty presence and person of God now resides in you. So you're not God, but his presence and power resides in you. This Ark of the Covenant in the Old Testament, Keita, are you still at the back there? Could you stick that wee um, image up for me? Because some people are looking at me going, what is an Ark of the Covenant? Um, we're going to put it on screen. Have you ever watched Indiana Jones, Raiders of the Lost Ark? Yeah? 
So that was loosely based on a true story where certain people tried to find the ark during the Second World War so that it would win the battle for them. And Indiana Jones found it and stored it secretly away. But this is the Ark of the Covenant as was situated in Israel in Old Testament times in the tabernacle. It was a box of wood overlaid with gold. And on the top of the box, you had this lid either side. You had angels' wings. And in the center on that seat, you had the manifest or visible presence of Almighty God. This was a very special thing, as I said last week. And it was taken from place to place at the Lord's leading. And that's where he would make his presence known, um, surrounded by the temple and all of those things. But this ark was only seen when it was moved by the priests. And if it was resident in a place, it was only seen by one priest once a year. Okay? So it was very special. It was hidden behind a large curtain that one priest once a year could enter in and see this glory. So this was a visible place where the glory of God was. The idea of tabernacle, the idea of God making himself known, the idea of God being resident in places at certain times is a very unique Old Testament idea, and it's very, very important. For us today in the New Covenant, we don't really get the significance of this. In the Old Testament, God's presence was only visible at certain times in certain places, and his power was only evident on certain people at certain times. So if you were Moses or you were Bezalel making some of this stuff, you were skilled and empowered by the Spirit to do that task and to do it well. So certain people, certain places, certain times only got to experience the power of God on their lives. That's why it talks about in other stories about the Spirit came upon David or the Spirit rushed upon Samson. Certain people got to feel it at certain times. But imagine you were living in these times and you heard a prophet of God say these words, I will pour out my spirit on all people in the days to come. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my manservants and maidservants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. Certain people, certain places, certain times, but then a prophet comes along and he says those words. In the days to come, God says, I'll pour out my spirit on all of my people. Old men, young men, male, female, servants, the whole lot. Can you imagine the excitement? Oh, it's coming a day when it's not just going to be for the few, it's going to be for all. And we know as Pentecostals when that day was, as recorded in Acts 2, the day of Pentecost, the day when the Spirit came. Whenever Peter stands up amongst the crowd and everyone's asking, what's going on here? Peter says, this is what was spoken of the prophet Joel, that in the last days this would happen, and now it's happening. Why does that matter for you? Some people are wondering, what has that got to do with me? You are now the sons and the daughters. You are now the manservants and maidservants whom this promise applies to. Because Peter said something else that day to the people who heard. He said, this promise is for you and also your children that are far off. Folks, as a child of God, you, yes, you today, are empowered by the Holy Spirit to live an effective life in this world that you live. Not only for the few, but now for us all. 
If you don't believe me, go home and read 1 Corinthians 12 and 1 Corinthians 14. Because some of you are looking at me like you don't really believe me. But I am telling you, folks, we need to get this into our heads. When the ark went into certain situations, things changed. Gods fell on their faces, false gods, idols. Whole countrysides and regions, the power of God was revealed. Was there any special thing going on? No, just the ark went into those situations. We often think that our Christian lives, we have to change this and have to do that and have to do the other thing. And what great thing are we going to do for God? And how am I going to change this situation? I'm going to change that situation. Folks, wherever you go, the presence and person and power of God goes. The same way that the ark went and things fell. See, when you go into your workplace tomorrow, into your home situation, into your community, God goes with you. And over time, those situations will change. Now, they mightn't change in the way that you want. It it mightn't go exactly how you planned it, but things will change because you go and God goes with you. See, we see the darkness around us on every side, but I think and believe that the darkness will flee when the light moves in. It's basic common sense that when you flick a light on, the darkness goes. See, darkness is only the absence of light. Why is it that we spend so much time shouting at the darkness, writing letters about the darkness, giving off about the darkness, even having really long prayer meetings about the darkness? Folks, we just have to be the light and the darkness will flee. That's what Jesus said, wasn't it? You are the light of the world. You are a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. So why are we hiding, shouting at the darkness? All we have to do is move in. Now, what that means for you, it might mean like speaking to your neighbor. It might mean opening your home to the broken and the outcast and the down and out. It might mean repenting of sectarian attitudes. It might be looking after the homeless and feeding those who haven't got. It might be going to the mission field. It might be being a good school teacher or good parent. It might be sowing in good values into your children's lives because you haven't got time to do anything else. Folks, that's it. That's what, looking, that's what bringing the light into the darkness looks like. And as your children even, that's just stuck in my mind, as your children grow up with values and self-worth and a healthy attitude about themselves, they take light into the dark places. They sit beside children who have self-worth issues and they show a different way and a better way. It's not as complicated as we make it. And it's not difficult because we're not the ones who change it. God is. His presence in us is what brings about the change. All that had to happen for the idols to fall was the presence of God to be there. Be who you are and the things around us will change. The idols will fall where God's presence is. And let me finish this point by asking this. In light of this reality, in light of what I've shared with you, I'll ask the question Paul asked to the Corinthians, do you not know that you are temples of the Holy Spirit? Maybe that's what you should ask yourself in the morning when you get up rather than I look good. So God is supreme. God is in us where we go. And the third thing, and by this I'm finishing, keep in mind that the response to the revelation of God will be varied. This is a wee bit of a, a tempering um, point. 
at the end of our passage, we, we looked at how the Philistines knew that God's presence was among them. We've seen the effects of God's power in their land. But listen, they did not submit to God. They just wanted to get rid of him. They'd seen his effects. They'd seen his power. They knew that he was the God of Israel. They were fearful, but they did not submit to his lordship. We might have this idea that as we go, everything in society is going to become easy. And a lot of us as Christians want that. We want the laws to be passed to give us an easy life. We want things to be outlawed that, that are against what we believe. That's the way we want things to turn out and want, want things to go. We hope that everyone will go, oh, we're so sorry. You Christians had it right all along. We're so sorry for giving you a hard time. You were right. We'll get rid of our false gods and we'll follow your God. But the reality is that type of change is not the norm. The norm is that the tares and the wheat grow up together. The norm is that people are going to be critical of you and what you believe. There's going to be an aspect of difficulty as we journey this out. So if things are tough for you, it's not because you're not doing your job. It's probably because you're doing your job well. Because the prophets that spoke the truth of God throughout the centuries were killed by the people they came to speak to. Our brothers and sisters in persecuted countries who are on fire for God, love God with their whole hearts, walk for miles to be in communion and fellowship with him, know their Bible inside out, they're getting the brunt of the worst persecution this world has ever seen. And it's not because they're not doing it right. It's because they're being true to who they are. So sometimes citywide, nationwide revival comes about, but oftentimes the wheat and the tares grow up together. Oftentimes there's persecution. Oftentimes the journey is difficult. But listen, here's the good, here's the good stuff. You will overcome all of that because you're in Christ. And even if it's not easy, you will overcome. One day, everyone will bow, but that might not be in this moment, this time. You might say, well, when they see the hand of God, surely they'll believe. Well, the Philistines saw the hand of God. They didn't believe. They didn't turn away from their sins. They didn't burn their statues and their idols. What do people do when they see the hand of God in operation, even in signs and wonders? Well, it's varied. Because do you remember Jesus, the man mad of Gadara, a man possessed, powerfully possessed by evil spirits, and everyone in the region knew that he was possessed. Jesus comes along and Mark chapter 5 delivers the man, the man sitting on his feet, in his right mind, and you have the whole pig episode where the evil spirits goes into the pigs and they run over the cliff. Do you remember what the people said? Oh, Jesus, brilliant. You know, you can heal us. You can sort everything out. We bow to you as Lord. No. They said, leave us. We don't want you here. Leave us. Jesus, the Messiah, delivering, healing, restoring a whole man's life in front of their very eyes. And they say, go. We don't want you here. This is why we don't just do humanitarian work. And we don't just seek to see signs and wonders done without the preaching of the gospel. We want to show God by our actions, but let us make sure we preach Jesus Christ and him crucified along with that. That's really, really important because Jesus who was crucified for our sins and the sins of the world, and we can have a relationship through God, through Christ, it's only by belief in that and by repentance, and by bowing the knee to Jesus, that you can have salvation. See, it's all very well to say, oh, God is, you know, God seems big. 
I like that idea. You know, God's big and he's in charge and he's supreme overall, but I'm just going to do my own thing. I don't really care really too much about his lordship. I'm not really interested in that sacrifice and forgiveness of sin stuff. I don't really need that. I'm a nice person. Folks, that's not enough. That's not enough. It's only through belief in Jesus Christ, the son of the living God who was crucified and died for our sins that you can have a relationship with God at all and see God for who he is. As James puts it in James 2.19, you believe that God is one, good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. It's ultimately this next thing in Acts 16 that we want. The jailer who runs to Paul and Silas and says, what must I do to be saved? And they say, not just believe in God, but believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. So the lordship and supremeness of who he is, but Jesus Christ, who was crucified and rose again, and you will be saved. See, Jesus is Lord, took our sin upon himself so we could be forgiven and brought into a relationship with the living sovereign God. And this gospel is the power of God onto those who believe. And it's only in belief in Jesus and the true message of the gospel that real change comes about. See, folks, we can want change to come, come about. We can desire there to be a difference in our land. We can desire there to be different laws. We can help people out. But if there's no gospel in it, then there's no eventual hope in it. It's just nice and it's just good and it's a good idea and it's right that we should do it. But if we leave the gospel out of it, then how is there going to be any eternal transformation? See, we can feed people. We can give them food. We can satisfy their physical hunger. But I don't want a hungry person on that journey going to a lost eternity. I don't want someone to say to me, I'm so glad you helped me out with X, Y, and Z and go to a lost eternity separated from God forever. That would be the worst case scenario. But sadly, folks, that's where we're getting ourselves into a wee bit at the minute because we've forgotten about this fact that for someone to come into life and life eternal and know a living relationship with God, they must bow the knee to the sovereignty and supremeness of the Lord, but the Lord Jesus Christ who loved us and gave himself for us. So don't leave that out of the equation as you go. Folks, this is the end of what I want to say. At the end of all things, this is the way things are. Our God is sovereign. He is in us to work out his will through us as his vessels. His kingdom will be fully manifest one day. And I'm looking forward to that day where he comes and sets up his rule in the new heaven and new earth as we look forward. That's the end of the story. So make sure when you're looking out on the world today, when you're reading today's news, you don't forget what is true and what is ultimately lying ahead. As you go into this dark world, remember who goes with you and remember the outcome of the story. Remember these things, the sovereignty of God, the reality of God in your heart. Take that on board as you go into this week and face whatever you're facing. But remember, Things might be tough, might be a challenge, but God goes with you and he's in charge and in control. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your truth of your word and I pray, Lord, that you would help us all live in the light of your reality, not even in terms of what we see in this land of ours, but in your reality. Help us believe these things, Lord, because they're your truth. But Lord, oftentimes we find it hard to accept 
or we look at our lives, we look at where we are, we even look at our failings and we think, that couldn't be true for me. God, but I pray that our lives and our minds would be shaped by your truth and nothing else. Help us, Lord. Help us reflect you in the world that we live. Point people towards you and not be ashamed of your gospel that brings about transformation. We pray this in your name. And everyone say it. Amen. Amen.